guys, good morning, afternoon, evening, night, wherever you're listening to today's episode, and welcome back to Teachable Psych. My name is Sarah, your host, and this week I had the wonderful opportunity to interview Dr. Aisha Metzger, who currently teaches at Georgia State University. So yeah, I hope you guys enjoy this week's episode, and I'll see you at the end. I am Dr. Aisha Metzger. I am currently faculty at Georgia State University, where I am director of the Empower Lab. Uh, At the Empower Lab, we focus on engaging minorities in prevention, outreach, wellness, education, and research. So all of our initiatives are focused around reducing disparities and improving outcomes for Black youth and families, as well as other marginalized populations. Um, When I say improving outcomes, I'm most interested in mental health outcomes like depression, anxiety, and PTSD, um, typically as related to experiences with interpersonal trauma, so things like child abuse and neglect and sexual assault, as well as racial trauma, and that's impact on Black youth and families. So racial trauma are things like experiencing microaggressions, experiencing discrimination, witnessing police brutality, and how those impact our mental health and behavioral health outcomes. How did you get into this specific study or what motivated you to study this? Um, yeah, so yeah, I think that my research is definitely me-search, if you've ever heard that term before, and that um, I was just interested in understanding the world around me. Um, So in terms of kind of interpersonal stressors, I'll say that I'm a family of immigrants and of refugees from Sierra Leone. Um, So those um, stressors are related to the war in Sierra Leone, but also as related to just growing up in College Park, Georgia, going to elementary school in a more um, white, affluent neighborhood and experiencing discrimination as well as kind of systemic barriers to uh, educational attainment early on. So I was almost put in special ed um, just based on, you know, cultural differences and and not, um, not necessarily not code switching appropriately, but certainly not um, choosing the appropriate language and the appropriate words in the classroom setting. And um, it was really just advocacy for my family. Um, And really, as I built my vocabulary, I started learning about racial socialization. And that is a a large part of my research now. So it's really the, um, the talk or the process that Black families engage in to really help their kids navigate society, navigate these stressors that they're going to encounter. And certainly as I was reading my books, even in high school, I started realizing, wait, I was going through this process with my family too. And wanting to, you know, learn about the actual benefit of racial pride messages and the actual benefit of those conversations that we have about barriers. Like, what do you do if you get pulled over by the police? if you get stopped by the police, if you get followed around a store, right? Or if a 
a classmate, you know, says that you're well-spoken for a Black person, how do you respond to that, right? <laughs> and just learning about, you know, the the benefit of having those comebacks readily available and how that reduces anxiety and rumination and right some of those internal conflicts that we can have as a result of those experiences with discrimination. Um, so really it was just my, my personal experiences, those early conversations, learning that, wait, these comebacks, you know, there's something in the literature as well. And there's an evidence base around them, um, which is really interesting for me and really impactful. I think as I've started to spread that education across the population, we started to see the benefit of just normalizing those experiences. Yeah. So if they see like, um, let's see, like pride or like parades and they're like, oh my gosh, we're actually supported by more than just black people, but it's really hard for them to change their mindset at, when their everyday life is surrounded by people, like putting them on a, like a lower ground. Wow. Yeah. That's so important, right? To be able to have experiences and messages and reminders that will combat right? What social media is saying, what the news is saying, what you're seeing when you're walking down the street to be able to, to remember, okay, you know what? I went to a parade last week and there were more people who look like and support me and I'm not alone. And that does reduce from, you know, experiencing hopelessness and helplessness. And those are associated, of course, right? With depression. So definitely um, it's really important to have those reminders and to have that that kind of reinforcement around us to combat those outside messages. Yeah. Okay, so I'm gonna ask you questions on education psychology now. So it's a really broad and general question, but how do you think education is related to psychology? Yeah, so a large portion of the work that I do in terms of disseminating, or let me say spreading awareness to the general population is around the benefit of education in just normalizing our experiences and validating our reactions. So that is to say, if I'm encountering a microaggression and I think one, I'm the only one to ever encounter this, um, or if I think there's something wrong with me for my body's natural responses, then that's more likely to lead to, again, these harmful outcomes in terms of the ways that we think about ourselves, the ways that we engage in classroom settings, for example. If I raise my hand 10 times and I don't get called on, I might become hopeless. I might stop trying in the classroom setting. But if I have a caregiver or if I have friends who say, you know what, it's not you, it's that the only Black kid in the classroom often gets overlooked. So now I'm not internalizing that as, you know, there's something wrong with me, I'm less intelligent, it becomes less me and more of a systemic or structural problem that I can combat. And what I found about education, so we call it psychoeducation, is that it provides that vocabulary for us, it normalizes our experiences, and it shows us alternative, more proactive, more positive ways of responding. So that's to say, if you encounter any stressor, you might fight, 
flight, freeze, or fawn. Have you heard of those kind of stress responses before? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we we provide education to people that says, if you encounter a microaggression in the classroom, those are your same natural responses. You might fight, you might become non-compliant. I keep raising my hand, no one's calling on me, right? You might freeze and just say, you know what? I'm no longer engaging. You might fawn, which is to say, you know, it's not that big of a deal to me and to laugh it off, right? Um, and the the purpose of education is to say any of those reactions are perfectly normal. There's nothing wrong with you. It's the problem of a microaggression or racism in this case. And how can we now, depending on how your body responds, think of a a natural but proactive, a positive way of if you're a fighter, how else can you fight? Maybe you fight by staying after class and talking to your teacher. Maybe you fight by writing a letter, right? So validating someone's, I think, normal responses through education is what allows them to say, you know, there's nothing wrong with me and there's something I can do about this. So that's kind of how we we try to target education um, I'm going to say clinically, but what we know is that the majority of people who have clinical problems or clinical symptoms aren't help seeking. So they're not in therapy. So what we've started to do is to disseminate that education across the public and across the population, um, through things like this, through podcasting, through public health messaging, through social media, even, um, And that really just spreads awareness. We have something that's called a Racism Hurts campaign. And that's just a campaign that educates the public on the impact of racism, on how individuals can serve as allies, on how you can respond to racism in a proactive way that's also a fight, right? Um, So I think that education is really beneficial, not only for those of us who are in school, not only for those of us who are seeking care, but just, you know, anyone who's navigating society. Yeah. I feel like education is really helpful. And it's not like an expensive way per se, if it's provided publicly. And it can help a lot of people not regarding other issues, especially global ones like pollution or like how to recycle. But people also have to be willing to learn. Yeah. Yeah. So we in psychology actually model our public health messaging around recycling campaigns and the campaigns around like cigarette smoking and drug abuse. Right. So we're starting to spread awareness about mental health problems as well um, for much the same reasons is that people catch on, people learn, people benefit and they do change their behaviors because of that. That I think is a really good example that you gave. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So what do you think is like the number one problem for teachers when interacting with students if they're like too impatient or don't understand that there's more than one learning style? For teachers who don't understand that or for students? Teachers. For teachers. Yeah, I think, you know, trying to fit a square peg into a round hole always results in only certain students being able to benefit from your your teaching style. Um, Some of my early studies were on standardized testing and um, the the lack of 
um, kind of cultural sensitivity to the fluency, um, kind of how I just described almost being placed in special ed because I was having problems code switching. But that also means I had two languages that I was speaking. And the same goes for African-American vernacular, for example. Kids are code switching, but they also have two separate languages that, they are, that they're able to speak from. And I think that as we're only speaking to or teaching from one specific learning style, one specific culture, one specific value base, I think that it's really a detriment to those individuals who can be, you know, creative, who can benefit from celebrating multiple cultures, who can also benefit from different learning styles. I think that celebrating diversity is not just to understand our different cultural backgrounds, but also, right, some people are visual learners, some people learn from hearing, some people learn from actually doing and having lived experiences. And certainly as teachers, we are going beyond the textbook to say, okay, we're going to do immersion activities, or we're going to do real world experiences and have you come back and talk about what you've learned in the classroom setting. Um, and I think that, yeah, you're absolutely right. It is, it's a detriment to only focus on one particular learning style, and it certainly limits the students. Um, and we can see that when we do do that, it, it benefits only some students and, and um, they're a disproportionate, um, I'd say consequences, but certainly um, a detriment to those more diverse students. So if you didn't uh, major in psychology and, but you were still a teacher, how do you think psychology affected the way you teach and understand others? Hmm. You know, it's really interesting. Whenever I talk to friends and family members who aren't psychologists, they can always relate to the constructs that we talk about. Um, so I think that even if I wasn't a psychologist, so for example, before I went into psychology, I was in child development. So I used to work at nurseries, daycare centers, um, but all of the constructs in terms of how we learn, um, in terms of how we're conditioned, in terms of um, kind of the benefit of social environments on our development. Um, all of that, I think I, I would have gained from any other um, similar field. So those are fields like, um, I just talked about like um, developmental sciences, medicine. I considered being a pediatrician at one point, right? Uh, <laughs> so that is to say that, yeah, I definitely think that no matter what I ended up doing, I would have borrowed from psychology in some way and seen the benefit of these, these constructs that we know hold true in our day-to-day -day lives. So if like undergrad students were required to take like a general psychology class, do you think that would benefit people in the long run? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Um, and at most R1 universities, they are. Um, I think you get a, a choice between the humanities. So maybe it's like psychology or social sciences. Um, but yeah, I think that it, it is a benefit for us to just understand kind of those basic principles to how we learn, how we socialize, how we uh, navigate society, how we deal with stressors, how to communicate effectively, right? All of those go into psychology and, and kind of relationship building and resilience building. Um, I think it's a, a fundamental knowledge base that 
you're talking about undergrads, so emerging adults, right? We need to know the connection between what we think and how we feel and, and what we do in order to, you know, make better decisions ourselves and to be better friends, better citizens, better humans. Definitely, I think a, a intro course <laughs> should be required. So going back to what you specifically study, um, so like for nature versus nurture, you can only do so much when your child is like with out of their 24 hours, like half their day, they're at school. And if they can't control, let's say their income and they can't move to a richer neighborhood, they can only teach their child so much and shield them from so much. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. We in psychology talk about that all the time, um, both in school psychology and education um, and um, in treatment. So if we do child and family therapy, we say it's even less than in school. So in school, at least they're there for, you know, six or seven hours a day and they are getting some outside socialization. In clinical work, they're here for an hour a week getting these strategies that we know work. So we do always tell caregivers, we do always tell kids even, right? That a large part of your socialization and, and how you are developing is going to come from your house and your relationships with your caregivers and your relationships with your siblings, but also where's your house situated? Are you around walking trails? Are you in a neighborhood that's heavily polluted? Do you have access to whole food stores and healthy grocery stores. These are, um, I think, structural and systemic factors that impact the ways that we are developing. But we know that those are more pervasive in that those are 24-7, right? Unlike school, that's a few hours or clinical work that um, is one hour a week. We know that, right, if I have this 24-7 problem in the back of my head about groceries and having to go to work, it's a lot harder for me to focus on these clinical skills. Um, so I do, I think that education is, is really beneficial in just um, educating not only kids and their caregivers, but also their teachers, administrators around exactly that. So if we have a kid who's you know, distracted in class, is it that they're unengaged and they don't care about their education? Or is it that you know, maybe they have financial concerns that they're dealing with at home, or maybe it's that they're checked out because the last 10 times they raised their hand, they didn't get called on. So what other sorts of, you know, interpersonal stressors and what other sorts of racial stressors might they be dealing with that are leading to these outcomes, right? So no, it's not that you're a bad kid or that you're lazy or that you're um, not caring about your education, but perhaps you're dealing with these other stressors that we can help you better manage so that you can now focus on what we do know is important to you as well. Um, so that's a really good question. And that, that, that shows, right, I think the importance of the work that we do in terms of really understanding all the stressors that are contributing to these outcomes um, that we do see in school, that we see at home, and that we see in communities as well. So if um, a student in a classroom setting and then a student um, like shows racism to another student, how would a teacher deal with that or discipline the child in a way so that it doesn't happen again and then influences other children to do the same? Yeah, so that is um, something that we call bystander intervention. 
And it's really important for teachers to know how to intervene as bystanders, especially as they're in positions of power and of influence. So they are able to set an example to call out problematic behavior and to help problem solve in the moment, whether that be um, directly coming up with a solution or just showing how to be unbiased when you're trying to resolve a situation or just investigate a situation. So that's to say, as teachers, don't just assume that, first of all, what we've seen is that a lot of times teachers assume that, you know, two Black kids talking loud with their hands like this are arguing. And no, oftentimes that's not the case, right? So first, making sure that you're, um, being open-minded, being curious, right? Not going into situations, assuming that these kids are bad kids, for example. Um, but also making sure that you are being culturally aware as you are dealing with these situations. So talking to kids about, you know, what's their perception of what, what was going on. Um, not assuming that one person was the offender versus the other, one person was the aggressor. Um, Asking clarifying statements. What did you mean when you said that? Um, calling out and educating things that you're able to label. So we we do provide education on the different types of microaggressions, for example. So if you're able to call out a micro insult as such and to say, you know, that sounds like a compliment, but it actually can hurt people's feelings. Uh, so for example, if someone says you're, you're really well-spoken for a Black person, and another student gets worked up or they get defensive by that, a teacher can use that as an opportunity to actually call that out and say, um, it might've been delivered as a compliment, but that's actually offensive to other groups because that's saying that, right? Everyone else in your group is not well-spoken. So providing that education, um, asking those questions for clarity about intent, and then also asking questions about impact. So if that message was delivered to someone, you can say, was that harmful? Was that, how did that make you feel? And using that as an opportunity to allow them to express themselves. So that's kind of allyship as well as intervening in the moment that just says, um, you know, this is something that's important for me to see everyone in this classroom for their, for their whole identities and to celebrate diversity and to celebrate differences. Um, or to right, intervene when something um, potentially harmful has happened or to clear the air if you think that something is ambiguous. Um, so it's oftentimes those, you know, those awkward silent moments um, that students will say that was an opportunity for the teacher to intervene or that was an opportunity where I lost trust in my teacher for taking up for me. So it is really important just to call it out and to say, right, it feels kind of tense in the room. You know, some things might have been said that hurt so-and-so's feelings. I just want to clarify what just happened and to make sure that you're okay and to check in on you. Um, and I think intervening in that way um, as a, a bystander, but also as a, a person who's in power um, does show not only your values, but does kind of disrupt those instances of, of microaggressions or racism that occur. And like a lot of the times the student that shows that behavior, most of the time they learned it from their parents because it doesn't, it's not common knowledge. It's something you learn, but you can't control the parent. Like they've already matured in a sense and you can't, and they're not your student either. So it's not like you can discipline them. 
Right. Yeah. So it depends on the student. Um, and we approach this in, in a couple different ways. So if the student is what I would say more progressive, if the student is more open minded um, and they're willing to pass on resources, that is something that um, teens, emerging adults, uh, even younger kids have, have found a benefit in. And that's something that teachers can help facilitate. So giving out resources and handouts. Um, we have a care package for racial healing. We have a racial trauma guide that we've been disseminating. And that's something that we encourage kiddos to take home and share with their parents, right? That's to say, you know, maybe I'm not going to debate police brutality with you at Thanksgiving dinner, but here you go. Just read this. I got this from school. You digest that. And if you want to talk to me about it, then you can. Um, so I think that education, yeah, it does go both ways, especially as kids are becoming more progressive. They're able to take that education back home. Um, and I do think, right, that that can even come from a learning experience from a kiddo who maybe was microaggressive and didn't know if they received that education. They can also take that back home and say, you know what, mom and dad, that's kind of problematic <laughs> um, and help spread awareness um, across generations as well. Okay, so um, my internet uh, is stopped, so I didn't get at the beginning of what you just said. Oh, no worries. So the good thing is I'm recording, so I can send you this recording link when we okay. get done, too. Thank you. Yes. See, it helps to have a backup. No worries at all. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, so I think those are all the questions I've had. So if you'd like to ask me some, I'd be glad to answer. Yeah. So tell me about how you got started with this podcast. Was it a class assignment? Is it just a, a passion project of yours? How's it been going since you got started? Okay. So I, I joined this like um, college counselor thing. Her name is Julie Kim. And so she was like, in order to stand out out of all the, like the pool of students, when you apply to college, you have to do certain things that show that you're passionate about what you want to go into or your um, own interests. And I've always been interested in psychology. And at like a couple of weeks before I went to my old school and I was a volunteer. So I was helping like being a substitute teacher for like kindergarten, like elementary classes. And I was like, I used to want to be a teacher, but oh my gosh, I my energy drained so much. And I only did it for a week. I was like, I don't understand how you're just going to do this and keep up their positive like energy the whole day. I was like, I love kids, but I can only do it once in a while. I don't think I can make this my career. And I was like, oh, wait, I could like merge the two ideas somehow because I'm still interested in both. And then I was like, oh, wait, I can do a podcast because there's like also like multiple forms of social media. I was like, I don't think I could film and like show my face on YouTube. And I was like, but this way I can still meet people and like branch out and then also like still have a way to show that I'm interested. So I started this last year, like very end of December. And so, yeah, I'm still doing it. So it's been going pretty well. And I've most like professors are very positive and like, Oh my gosh, I am so proud of you for doing this. And like, they've also obviously, um, participate. I was like, they're really nice. So this is a really good experience. And I'm really glad I got to do this. Yeah, this is such a good experience. Like you said, just to show what your interests are, but also it sounds like you're learning a lot 
from the people that you're talking to and your listeners are able to learn from that too. So yeah, that's great that you are receiving and giving back at the same time. Do you know what type of psychology you're interested in? So school psych or clinical psych? So I feel like I'm not sure because like I what I'm interested in is why people act a certain way and then like how they respond. I was like, that's like mostly sociology, but like I also don't know every specific category and branch of psychology to be able to be like, oh, this is because I know I don't want to be like a psychiatrist and like just prescribe medicine, but yeah. Mm, so one of our um most frequently used examples of the benefit of clinical psychology. <laughs> Um, and I'm only going to give you this example. I'm looking at the time. It says that you have six minutes and 53 seconds left on this. Um, so I'm going to give you this example. And if it resonates with you, then I will say, look into clinical psychology. Um, and this example is to demonstrate the connection between what you just said, why we do what we do and why we respond the way we respond. Clinical psychology is focused on helping us choose positive behaviors, healthy thoughts, positive feelings as well. But let me give you the example. So you are in 11th grade or 12th now? 11th. 11th grade. Okay. You, it's no longer the pandemic. You walk into the cafeteria. This is um, the cafeteria that's packed full of kids. Imagine you are an anxious teenager. You walk into the cafeteria, you're approaching a table and all of a sudden everyone starts laughing. What's your first thought? As an anxious high schooler, mm -hmm. you're probably like, did I do something? Did I embarrass myself? You're like, probably like frantically looking around like, oh my gosh, this is my right. like, first yeah. day. Like, how did I mess up already? There we go, perfect. Did I do something wrong? How did I mess up already? Great. Those are your thoughts. So if you think, did I do something wrong? How did I mess up already? What are your feelings that are associated with messing up and doing something wrong? Um, fear and like, cause that's, pro that's probably a learned behavior. You're like, right. Like, drop something. And then your parents yell at you. You're like, oh my gosh, I have to fix this immediately before they find out. Or like, so if you think I did something wrong, your feeling is you said fear. That's a feeling. Other people might say, I feel embarrassed. Other people might say, right? So those are negative feelings, feeling fear in response to doing something wrong. If you walk up to that table, you think you did something wrong, you feel fear, what does that make you do? It makes you even more cautious of your behaviors. Yeah, what might you physically do? Would you walk up to that table? Would you run away? Would you go somewhere else? What would your behavior be? Oh, you would like run out the room and be like, I'm never going back in there again. Right. So that shows you the connection between one situation, what you think is I did something wrong, what you feel embarrassed or fear and what you do, I avoid, I run away. So if we're doing clinical psychology to understand that connection, but also to choose more realistic, helpful, proactive, pro-social behaviors, what else could you think? Instead of, it must be me, 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 something's wrong with me. What else could you think about a table of teenagers who just erupt in laughter? You're probably like, they're probably laughing at something on their phone or they're talking about 
something they experienced over the weekend. Right. So now your thought is not internalized. It's not me, me, me. You're thinking, oh, maybe someone told a joke. Maybe something funny happened this weekend. So your thoughts are different. If you're thinking, oh, what just happened? What's happening with them? What sort of feeling is that? Instead of fear that... Curiosity and externalizing it. Curiosity. And if you're curious about something, instead of running away, now you're more likely to go towards it walk up to them and approach so clinical psychology is what allows us to understand okay i could think a little differently that would make me feel more positive and now i'm going to have more proactive and pro-social behaviors so we do that with literally any situation that is associated with a negative thought or an inaccurate thought right or a negative feeling or a harmful feeling or any negative behavior. So if you get in trouble for anything in the world, we're going to say, okay, what happened? What was your first thought? What was your behavior? Or what was your feeling associated with that? And what did you do? Okay, what else could you have thought? What else would that have made you feel? How else could you have responded? Um, So that is how we kind of give education around clinical psych, but it's also the benefit of clinical psych is that it allows us to be aware of our surroundings and how our body responds. And it allows us to change into, you know, more proactive behaviors and more helpful feelings. Um, So I say that to say, keep your interest in clinical psych, look into it at least. You're at a really good time and a really good position. Um, School psych, Education psych is a different kind of field within psychology, sociology, um, social work is different than sociology. Um, so you you have several options counseling <laughs> as well if you want to, you know, intervene um, and deliver treatment. So you have several options and you're having the right conversations right now to get that information so you can decide, okay, what am I going to major in in college? And then, you know, what are my next steps going to be? can we like get on another zoom because i have so many things to say yes please when that and what i'll say is now you know how to get in touch with me (laughs) stay persistent in the emails and of course i we might you know we had to reschedule once or twice for this we might have to you know get on each other's calendar (laughs) but yes we can definitely make another conversation happen great oh my gosh thank you so much for taking time today to do this you are so welcome. Please, please, please keep up the good work. Hang in there through the end of the semester and the end of the school year. And then senior year is going to be so exciting. Oh my gosh, it's coming up so fast. It is. And your entire senior year should be, you know, applying for colleges, applying for scholarships so you don't have to pay for it. So definitely as that starts approaching, reach out and we'll talk about making sure you got a a tight application together. I know your statements are going to be great. Your impact is going to be great. You're doing great things right now. So that's awesome. Oh my gosh. Okay. Thank you so much. (laughs) You're so welcome. It was so good meeting you. Yes, me too. Have a good night. welcome back i hope you really enjoyed this week's episode and i can't wait to see y'all next time have a good rest of your day morning night evening whenever you're listening to this episode and i'll see y'all next time bye